Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a Sunday special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, December 27th, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, December 25th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,065, that's 16065. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,066, that's 16066. This morning, A Vision for You presents Homes, Occupations, and Affairs, Demonstrating the Principles. The 12th step reads, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. The 12th step sums up our 12-step recovery program as a lifetime undertaking based on the practice of spiritual principles and service to others. Bill Wilson writes, The joy of living is the theme of AA's 12th step, and action is its key word. Here we begin to practice all 12 steps of the program in our daily lives so that we and those about us may find emotional sobriety. The transforming power of the 12 steps is now focused on the whole life, in our homes, occupations, and affairs as we move to a larger, more encompassing dimension, the world of the spirit. The principles embodied in the 12 steps are to be applied daily in our lives. In fact, it becomes the design of our lives. Bill Wilson posed the following questions. What about the practice of the principles in all our affairs? Can we love the whole pattern of living as eagerly as we do the small segment of it we discover when we try to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety? Can we actually carry the AA spirit into our daily work? Good questions. The challenge we meet is to transfer our practice of the program's great principles into our whole life. Practicing these principles is living life on life's terms. It is a life characterized by remarkable transformation. Indeed, demonstrating the principles becomes the design of our lives. Joining us today to elaborate on this vital topic is Esther C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Canada. Esther is dedicated to living our 12-step way of life and committed to carrying this message of recovery, and it's with great appreciation and delight that I welcome Esther C. to the line this morning. Good morning, Esther. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. 
Am I am I okay? Am I you are okay? okay. Yes, <laughs> better than okay. The clarion call of a vision for you. Am I being heard? <laughs> All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Esther C., and I'm a compulsive overeater from Toronto, Canada. It's very nice to be here, and I'm always grateful for the opportunity to do a service, um, especially when I sit and make some notes uh, before these shares. It always gives me an opportunity to capture all those, you know, experiences, you know, in a particular topic that are floating around in my mind. And when I actually put them down on paper, it, it always leaves me abundantly grateful about where I've you know, been and where I am today, thank God. So I, I have been a compulsive overeater my entire life. There was never a moment that I could recall that I wasn't either running towards the food or running away from the food. Uh, when I was enjoying my food, I certainly was not able to control it. And when I had to control it, I was not enjoying my food. And let me tell you, it was very hard growing up as a fat child. In those years, uh, let's say from my childhood throughout you know, my, uh, let's say, high school years, my weight ranged from what you would call pleasantly plump to morbidly obese, depending on the year. And I wasn't really a very good dieter because to me, dieting was like holding my breath. And really, how long can a person hold their breath for? So I recall that the the three major, the three feelings that I had throughout my childhood regarding my problem with food was the pain, shame, and hopelessness. So the pain, for for those of you out there who have been fat children, you know that the world is not a friendly place. I can't say that I was teased constantly, but it was very clear to me, even in the subtle way, that I was a second-class citizen. I surely did not get to wear what everybody else wore. I remember when I outgrew size extra large. In those days, they didn't have all these plus-size shops. So I... I migrated to men's clothes because I, you know, I guess a men, an extra large man was bigger than an extra large lady. So a lot of humiliation surrounding my, my size. There were a lot of things I couldn't do on account of my weight, a lot of activities I couldn't participate in. I remember there was a dress-up box at school, and I could never dress up in those uh, costumes because, of course, none of them ever fit me. And definitely there was a lot of shame associated with all of this because I felt stupid. I mean, you didn't need a lot of brains to know how to lose weight, right? And I always felt that the world viewed me, uh, people in general, as either stupid or undisciplined or something else. Because everyone knows if you want to lose weight, you just eat less. Nobody, especially my family, they would see how much I was suffering. They, They didn't understand why I ate so much. And you know what? Neither did I. I thought, I must be stupid because I can't figure this out. And of course, it was the hopelessness because to feel like I was trapped in a situation and I had no way of getting out, I thought, I can't believe that I have to live my whole life like this. It just clouded everything. It clouded what could have been a very happy childhood. So of course, I had the same dreams and hopes as many other people. I I uh, wanted to accomplish a lot. I knew that I could do a lot with my life and I wanted to good, do good things both for myself and for the world. I grew up in a home where we were very um, inspired people and out there doing for others. And I also had those dreams. I'm sure that a lot of those dreams had to do with my being recognized for all the contributions I would make, but I I had good intentions. And on the surface, it would seem that I had a lot going for me, right? I was, I was, you know, reasonably intelligent. I had okay marks. I probably could have done a better job had I tried a little more. I had my own room, you know, and all the stuff that's supposed to make up happy childhoods, right? 
lessons and, you know, vacations in the winter and camps in the summer and all these things which should have made me abundantly grateful and happy. But I can tell you, I was not grateful and for sure not happy. I was not accepting of my social status, you know, on account of my weight. I I felt that my social life was ruined because of my weight. And I so much craved the acceptance and the admiration and approval of my peers that I often, you know, sunk to places I'm not proud of to get it, right? I was I was a terrible show-off. I did a lot of people-pleasing. I was very driven and competitive because I had to be the best at everything else because I, I wasn't best at the most basic thing. Um, so I had to be, you know, better or best in everything else. And all the while, there was a lot of anger building up inside of me, right? Anger at the unfairness of the way things unfolded and anger at what I felt was circumstances that I didn't deserve. And if any of you know, like a bottle of soda with all those bubbles that are getting bounced around in there, um, you know, my my thinking kept like, you know, agitating all these bubbles. And sometimes they would trickle out, like, you know, when you open up that bottle of soda, you hear that sound, right? That, that was... That was my anger coming out as whining and complaining to anyone who was willing to listen. But sometimes if you opened a little too quickly, there was an explosion and everything was all over the place. And that was what it was like. Very temperamental, very easily um, irritated. So on top of everything that was going on, I, I had a temper and it was definitely felt by those around me. And obviously, the closer you were to me, the more you felt it. And there's a lot of wreckage after explosions like that, as m- maybe some of you know. And I hated myself for it, and I I hated the life I was living. And the only thing I knew how to do through all of this was eat and eat and eat. And certainly when I um, got married and had started a family at a relatively young age, there were now more people in my emotional orbit. So there's more wreckage and more eating. And as the years slowly passed, I, I noticed that many of my peers were, you know, doing good in the world and accomplishing things and being recognized. And so, so now I experienced this new sensation of jealousy. It's not that it was new in a sense, because I had certainly had that as a young child watching all the skinny girls live what I thought were these perfect lives. But suddenly, um, you know, that feeling when you know you could do more and you and you just aren't, you know, that feeling of, of just not being one's best self. It filled me with great jealousy. I knew that I could do what they did, and I, I said to myself, well, why why can't I? Why aren't I? I, I wanted a better life. I just wanted more of, of something, but I wasn't sure what it was. So I blamed my low self-esteem, you know, and whose fault was it? Well, of course, somebody else's fault, right? My best friend at the time was my self-pity, if, if you want to call it best friend. Um, and I'll tell you the truth that uh, um, I did a lot of complaining to my friends, you know, I was a victim, poor me, poor me. Um, and certainly when they got tired of hearing from me or when I felt it was already too much, you know, sitting down and telling them about all the things I had complaints about, you know, you could just find people and pay them and sit there in their offices and talk to them and talk to them. So this was quite a cocktail that was being brewed here, self-pity, compulsive overeating, jealousy, anger, a hot temper, and unfortunately, a quick tongue. I At that time, I could not make peace with my life. And I felt that all my natural gifts were wasted, which was a very, very difficult thing for me to come to terms with. It's similar to what Bill W. says in his own story on page eight. He says, I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, 
of my capacity to surmount obstacle was cornered at last. And that's how I felt um, at a certain point in my life. There was a lot of physical and emotional suffering that I endured until I finally came into the program of recovery. I came in with a lot of baggage, 260 pounds worth of baggage. Um, but finally, I came into the room of Overeaters Anonymous. And I've told that uh, part of my story many times before, but I want to uh, skip over, you know, that entry and get straight to when I, you know, finally was acquainted with somebody about 10 years ago, someone in whom the problem had been solved, someone with whom I had not a single thing in common, but she was a compulsive overeater like me, and she became my sponsor. And she took me through the steps as they are outlined in the first 164 pages of the big book, and I recovered. So, of course, I experienced great relief immediately at that time of my life because, number one, I had a lot of medical challenges, and definitely my body responded very happily as it moved towards a healthy body weight. And best of all, I was delighted to learn that I no longer had to fight the food, right? I um, this was a great gift in the program, one that I had not expected. I knew that I would lose weight if I would learn to eat differently, but I never expected this great gift of not having to fight the food, this state of what we call being recovered. And the other thing that I learned, among the other things that I learned, was that um, to see that I was the manufacturer of, of my own misery and that the key to my happiness starts in my mind. So this is what I really want to focus on today, um, how the changes in me and then um, from there, radiates to those about me. So I'll go skip down um, all the way to step 12. Um, step 12 reads, as I read earlier, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. So what do we get to do now, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps? Well, number one, we carry this message to other compulsive overeaters, and that's sponsorship within the fellowship. And we talk about that in great detail when we speak about that on the line. But the other thing that we get to do or are meant to do is to practice these principles in all our affairs, which means out there in the rest of my life. So this is what I wanted to focus on today. My experience was demonstrating these principles in home occupation and affairs. But but really how all this began with me, that how when I changed, the, somehow the world around me changed. And notice that at the point that I was done with the steps, I wasn't a done person. I was really um, embarking on a new way of living, right? I wasn't on the line listening to do dozens of recovered people sharing and then wondering why a few days after I finished the steps, I didn't feel like they sounded. Everything that I'm about to share with you today, I'm telling you the experience of over 10 years, one day at a time. So there was no nothing special about it. I just did what the book told me to do, and I did you know, nothing more, nothing less. So, all right, let's get started. Let's talk about those principles that we have to uh, carry in all our affairs. If you recall, in the big book, so I'm going to be doing a lot of quoting um, from the big book in the AA 12 and 12, if you'll have patience to listen to some of those. Um, if you look in your big book on page 27, we are told there what the key to recovery is. That is, what is the solution to our problem? We are meant to have, it says on page 27, vital spiritual experiences, meaning ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of our lives are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them, end quote. So that's what I did in the inventory process. I had a chance to examine those ideas, which were fueling um, my life, right, my emotions, 
And then I got to see which ones needed to be discarded and how to go about getting new ones. So to me, this is actually my second favorite sentence in the big book. Um, and the reason that I found this sentence um, very liberating was because um, what it's teaching me is that the quality of my life begins in my head. I thought if I want to have a good life, is that then I had to have this amount of money and this amount of recognition and like all these other little things in my life had to be sort of set in place. And then I would be happy. My body had to work like this and I had to be healthy to this degree. And now I'm learning that the quality of my life begins in my head with my thinking, right? The old way of thinking was leading me to the food. I had to throw that way of thinking out and I had to replace it with new one and voila, different thoughts, different life. But why is that? Why should that be like that? Because what I learned from doing the steps and what I learned through the big book is that the way I think is going to determine how I feel and how I feel in turn will uh, fuel how I'm going to act. And of course, my actions followed by more actions by more actions is basically my life. So to know that I could change how I feel by changing how I think was a very liberating um, idea for me. So I want to share some of those old ideas with you and how discarding them and replacing them with new ones changed who I became and in turn changed how I related to other people. And suddenly I look around and it's like, wow, look at this great world that I live in and look at these great people I live with. Um, so what are some of the thoughts that dominated my thinking as I was growing up in the first decade of decades of my adult life? Number one, I was very busy with my self-esteem my whole life. I was always working on having high self-esteem and wondering why I didn't have enough of it and whose fault is it that I don't have it and how to get more of it. Another idea that dominated my thinking was that if I were somehow self-actualized, I would be happy. Like if I could, I could you know, spend a lot of time thinking about me and how to sort of make the most out of me, then that would be, you know, a key to a happy life. Another um, thought that I had was that the goal of, of, of being here, right, that my higher, higher power put me on this earth you know, to be self-fulfilled, like I'm here to figure out how to, you know, get the most out of life. Um, another idea that fueled me was um, my thinking was, uh, my, excuse me, my feeling was that, you know, helping others is a good thing, but helping others too much is being a doormat. And I must definitely protect myself from this doormat hood, you know, at all costs, right? There's, there's such a thing as too much. Um, so this has also fueled a lot of my resentment and a lot of what I felt was unreciprocated uh, goodwill. I would do good for you. So no, where was it? You know, why weren't you responding the way I want you to respond? And the final um, idea, which was also very, very powerful, not a big idea, but one that really um, directed a lot of my anger and jealousy was I thought that I had to be somehow set apart or especially distinguished from regular people in order to accomplish big things in life. You know, even like good big things, right? Like if you're, if you're famous and you're noted, then it must mean that you're doing something amazing in life. And if you're just a regular person, then you're clearly not, you know, maximizing anything. So one of the things you'll notice is that, that all these ideas have in common is all about me, 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 me. So even as I was jotting them down, thinking them through, I said to myself, I can't believe I used to live like this, that this, these were the th things that, you know, I thought about all day. So self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-love, and now, of course, the newest word is self-care. These are all related to the idea that if I focus on myself, I'm going to be happy, and then I'll be able to do for others, and I'm going to be able to live a good life. And these, these were the attitudes and ideas that dominated my thinking. Now, I, 
I don't know that I'm alone in this regard. It seems like it's all everyone talks about these days. Um, but where did these type of thoughts lead me? All these thoughts of like, you know, making the most out of life and my little plans and designs it never led me to feel good about myself. I was a people pleaser. I was constantly seeking validation from others. And I'll tell you that living like that with those kind of thoughts put me square on the path that leads straight to the fridge. This is the path to the fridge for me. When I recovered, I had a new way of thinking. I put these steps and principles to the test and I applied every problem to those steps and principles. So I viewed every new situation that cropped up in my life through the lens of program and not the lens of what I just described, which I don't know if you want to call it popular culture or the way I grew up. So let's see what the big book tells us. We talk about the principles in the big book. What are those principles? Let's see what the big book has to tell us. What constitutes a good life? The big book on page 19 says, quoting here now from the big book, most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and the respect for their opinions and our attitudes which make us more useful to others. So this means that even if I'm right, so let me tell you, if you're really reasonably intelligent and capable, you're going to be right a lot of the time. But even if I'm right, I don't get any brownie points for being right. But I do get to reap spiritual dividends for being tolerant and respectful. I don't grow by being right, but I can grow spiritually by bringing light to a situation, not by being right. This is very, very challenging for me. Because um, often in situations, I am right. I could go to five people and say, she's not doing the right thing. I am doing the right thing. And I can't get over it. And I realize I'm, I'm digging a hole to nowhere because I don't, there's no value to be right. You know, so I, you know, here and there, I've read about other spiritual paths. And I could tell you that just about, I think none of them uh, <laughs> assign any virtue to being right. So, um when I come up to a situation where uh, I'm right and I think some people are, are, you know, off in some way, I have to figure out a different way to accept the situation. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. That same paragraph, page 19, says, our very lives, what, depend on our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. This is also very revealing and very transforming. What? My life depends on thinking about others and how I have to meet their needs. This sounds like I'm going to become some kind of doormat. But this is a problem because Big Book is telling me that helping others is going to save my life. And what else does the Big Book have to teach me? On page 77, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. I remember when I read this line, I thought to myself, you must be joking, right? I mean, service? This sounds like a little bit too much. I could tell you that all those sitcoms that I watched during the 80s did not once, you know, <laughs> mention anything about spending a life doing service. That's not what I learned. And I'm not blaming anyone or the media or my family or the people around me. That just whatever I picked up, I surely didn't pick up that service was important. And to me, this is all count, counterintuitive, right? Because I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be selfless and tolerant, and that is going to lead me to the life I've been looking for. I want to stay recovered. I don't want to eat anymore. I want to be happy. And you're telling me, well, focus on others. And the truth is, is that I just did what they told me to do, and it worked. When I took the spotlight off me and my problems and my feelings and my little plans and designs, and I started to shine it on God and, and other people, that is when I started to develop 
the stability and the security and the self-esteem that I'd always been looking for. So self-forgetting for me was the path to self-fulfillment. And this was a brand new idea. And this is now the attitude that I would say dominates my thinking. I have my days where I could be off, but for the most part, this is what I think about and how I look at life um, since I recovered. I do, like, as I mentioned, get off the beam on occasion, but at the very least, I know how to get back on and where, where I'm going back to. Um, the A, 12 and 12, which re- basically is an amplification of the steps and principles, um, also has what to say about what constitutes a good life. And if you, if you it's a, just everything in there is great reading. If you look at um, chapter 12, which is the chapter on step 12, towards the end, there is a discussion of practicing these principles in all our affairs. So I actually find it very touching every time I read it. Um, I, I, every time I read it, I think to myself, how did he know me so well? He wrote the, he must have written it before I was even born. And yet he just captured all the, you know, feelings and insecurities that I have um, on page 14, one, excuse me, on page 114 of the A and 12 and 12, it writes there, we have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end and aim of our lives. On page 116, we have to develop the sense of being in partnership or brotherhood with all those around us. Even more on page 116, we saw that we would need to give constantly of ourselves without demands for repayment. When we persistently did this, we gradually found that people were attracted to us as never before. Even if they failed us, we could be understanding and not too seriously affected. Further down, it says, we discovered the best possible source of emotional stability was to be God himself. Even further down, these were the new attitudes that finally brought many of us an inner strength and peace that could not be deeply shaken by the shortcomings of others or by any calamity not of our own making. So it's teaching me that when I break my faulty dependence on others, their opinions of me and their validation, then I don't have to be afraid of them anymore. I could be myself. I can make mistakes. I could speak the truth. I can, uh, I can apologize on the spot. I can accept criticism. You know, I think to myself how much money and resources and energy I spent and, uh, and how much pain I brought to those closest to me due to this incessant need to um, feel fulfilled and to um, get the approval and the validation of those around me. Of course, all of this which was based on my old way of thinking. Um, as I also mentioned earlier, I had wanted to be a somebody. Why? Because I lived the first 40 years of my life thinking that if I was a somebody, and whatever somebody means to each of us, it's different, but I, I felt like if if I was a leader of some type and I had noted and visible accomplishments and that was considered a life well lived. Well, let me tell you what the 12 and 12 has to say about the pitfalls of that way of thinking, you know, and it, and it reminds us of those principles again. It teaches us about the problems of personal importance, power, ambition, and leadership. I like to call this reading getting right sized 101 on page 123 in the AA 12 and 12. It says, as to our grandiose behavior, we insisted that we had been possessed of nothing but a high and legitimate ambition to win the battle of life. Further, we simply had to be number one people to cover up our deep lying inferiorities. In fitful successes, we boasted of greater feats to be done, and in defeat, we were bitter, right? That was the jealousy I was talking about. Well, today, we no longer strive to dominate or rule those about us in order to gain self-importance. 
We no longer seek fame and honor in order to be praised. When by devoted service to family, friends, business, or community, we attract widespread affection and are sometimes singled out for posts of greater responsibility and trust, we try to be humbly grateful and exert ourselves the more in a spirit of love and service. True leadership, this is also groundbreaking for me, true leadership we find depends on able example and not upon vain displays of power or glory. Still more wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be specially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. So that's what I learned um, in, in uh, you know, doing the steps and living this 12-step way of life. So you may be wondering, all these are very nice principles, but how, does, how do all these principles get off the page and into my life? Well, once I recovered, that happened for me through steps 10 and 11 and 12. I have nothing to share that's more glamorous or more expensive than that, right? It seems simple, and it is simple, but, it, it, but it's just one of those things that you just do day in, day out, and reap the rewards like as the time goes on. As, during the day, as my fears and resentments crop up, I have the opportunity to examine my faulty thinking and notice that I called it an opportunity, right? 10th, 11th, and 12th step practices are not onerous, and they're not holding me back from anything. In, in addition to the fact that they're saving my life, they're also showing me which ideas lead to, lead to the self-pity, victimization, entitlement, self-obsession, and all that, right? And I have the opportunity to replace them with new ideas attitudes which are now going to be the guiding forces that I've learned about in the big book and that we just discussed. They're not um, a pain in the neck, like maybe some people see them. They're the thing that keep me where I want to be and, and, and keeps me in a, in a recovered state, right? Not fighting the food. And slowly, right, just doing what I was supposed to do every day in the, that unglamorous, uh, uninteresting way, I noticed that the frequency, intensity, and the duration of these faulty dependencies started to diminish. So when we talk about homes, occupation, affairs, you know, you may be thinking, well, we just spoke about how we get to be transformed and programmed, but what about all those around us? So how are we we carrying the message? So how do I carry these messages and demonstrate these principles in my homes, occupation, and affairs? do you think anyone wants to hear my speeches? I assure you that they do not. And I once heard someone say in program, it was a great line. Carry, or I don't know where they got it from. Carry the message and use words if you must. So no one's interested in hearing um, me talk about what I think. Um, and, what I, and they're certainly not interested in hearing my preaching. But when I practice these principles, when I do what I have to do in that boring way every day, day in and day out, I can bring light to those around me. So what's the magic in it? What's the magic in it? How does that work? I, again, I just do what the big book tells me to do every day. And I do when I don't always want to. And I do when I'm sometimes busy. And I'll tell you that you can't, um, you can't fake it. You can get on this line and you can, you know, be a gifted speaker. Um, but the people closest to you will know if you are, um, you know, living those principles. I could say that I'm accepting of a situation that it doesn't bother bother me anymore, but if I'm doing complaining, like kind of that low-grade complaining, you know, that testifies that, in fact, I have not divorced myself from self-pity, as the big book tells me I must do on page 86. You know, so um, it's not enough to make uh, great declarations and proclamations of 
how I've changed. I need to live it. And I think the people around me could see if I'm living it or not. And speaking of that self-pity that the uh, big book tells me I must divorce, I want to tell you that it, it keeps knocking at my door. And I have often let it back in and then kicked it out. <laughs> self-pity always wants me to be a victim. Why? Because if I get to be the victim, then I don't have to do all this stuff, right? Because, hey, it's someone else's fault that I'm not happy and I don't have to do all this stuff. Um, 10 step? What did I do 10 step? Do you know what they did to me? So that's why self-pity always knocks at my door because then I get to free myself of all this, you know, obligation. Um, sometimes it's not my own ego um, telling me that, you know, what I'm doing is useless or unnecessary or unfair. Sometimes it's the people out there that I meet, right? People in and out of the program of recovery who know about this idea of 10 steps and self-reflection, they'll say, you know, you shouldn't be so hard on yourself. You really should spend more time loving yourself. Let me tell you, I spent the first 40 years of my life trying to love myself, and I know the results of that. I could tell you that this way of living definitely works, and I could tell you that I love myself and appreciate myself in a way that I, even on my best days way back when, I didn't have. Another um, uh, voice that I'll often hear in and out of the rooms is, you're being taken advantage of. You shouldn't always say yes. (laughs) Or, you know, this idea that I have to take a break from program and focus on me for a bit. If, if 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 the principles of the 12 steps are part of the fabric of my life, I don't need to take a break from it. It's part of the fabric of my life. It makes up my cells. It is who I am. So demonstrating these principles and how I act, speak in my regular day-to-day life is how I spread the message in all my affairs, right? What I say, what I do, and sometimes what I don't say and what I don't do, those speak loudly as well. So I didn't set a timetable for all of this. Right? I didn't say, okay, by one year post-recovery, I should be doing this. By two years post-recovery, it'll be that. I didn't do that. But I did notice when I would look back that there were certain ways of either speaking or acting or even dressing that just didn't seem to fit anymore. They didn't, they didn't, I sense that they weren't appropriate anymore for someone who's meant to be an ambassador for a spiritual way of living. How do I respond to disappointment? The people around me can see that. How do I respond to everyday annoyances? It's also a demonstration. How do I respond to insults, to criticisms? I could be in a group in a meeting and someone will throw out a criticism or an insult. How do I respond to that? That's a demonstration of the principles. And that is a testimony to the spiritual way of living more than any speeches that I could give. My desire is to be like a thermostat, not a thermometer. So everyone knows how a thermometer works. It goes up and down based on the temperature right? It only knows how to react. She misbehaves, I get mad. He doesn't acknowledge my work, I'm resentful. Up, down, up, down, depending on whatever's going on around me. A thermostat, on the other hand, senses the temperature and then makes the adjustment necessary to maintain like a certain climate. So here we are, same, same people in my life. I have a complaining colleague again. So I suddenly get annoyed. And then my mind goes, ding, 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 you're annoyed. Time for a 10 step. I run it through my mind quickly. I come up with the thoughts that are fueling the annoyance, got to throw them out, replace them with new ones, right? And then suddenly, I can, instead of reacting to her, I can respond to her appropriately, and I can now create connection, light, and peace. And of course, through all this, there's no thought of eating to, you know, to stuff my feelings down. So this is the difference between being someone who just reacts to what's going on and blaming 
you know, the, the, the environment or to someone who sets the tone in the environment. It's really easy to be sucked into negativities today. People tell you times are hard. Yes, but times were always hard. I don't think that in my grandparents' days things were that much different. Maybe some things were easier, but some things were also harder. Um, and I'm not knocking people's legitimate painful challenges. I, I have some of them myself. And surely when we initially suffer a blow, we cry out, and that's normal. It's normal for me to say out from something hurt. But what did I learn, you know, through application of these principles, that it isn't the challenges per se, but it's the thinking that makes life, you know, feel hard. It's the differences in thinking that makes the difference in whether I'm going to feel that life is a blessing or or life is just, um, I don't know, punches that I have to roll with or something like that. I, I get to choose my thoughts, you know, if I direct them to higher power and service, then I'll get one outcome. And I get to discard the ones that don't work for me, like the victimization and self-pity and the entitlement, right? Oh, I deserve it. Or it's self-obsession. How am I feeling today? Am I happy? Am I not happy? Am I fulfilled? You know, I, I get to choose and I get to reap whatever I, choice I've made. I know today that it's my ego and the insatiable demands that create distance between me and my higher power. And that, for me, is the breeding ground of self-centered thinking. So there are many occasions <laughs> where I say and do things that bring no light to anyone or anything. But at the very least, I know when I'm off track, I know where the track is, and I know how to get back on it. And it's important for me to address my mistakes as they come up. And I cannot go down that road of, like, pious self-pity, Right. So, like, I, I used to have this idea that if I throw in some self-flagellation, you know, like, I wanted to make it all about me, but I don't want to really make it all about me. So I start to get um, all pious, and then somehow it feels like it's very righteous. Like, I'll say, oh, I'll never get this, or you know, there must be something wrong with me. I keep making mistakes, or, you know, to me, those are all just ways of saying, I don't want to go down the road of self-pity, but I really want to make it all about me again, you know. Um, so I've got to be cautious about that, too. I, I, I know, I've noticed when I do that sometimes. Um, and, you know, you'd think once someone has a life transformed, they would never go down the road of self, uh, self-pity. self But what can I tell you? Self-pity for me is very seductive, and it's also very popular these days. I mean, you know, if I, if I get to be a victim, it's like it's all the rage, and it's very profitable, right? But for me, the payback from the self-pity and the victimization, it was counterfeit and it was short-lived. And if, I, and if I let it go on long enough, it left me feeling hungry. So today, when something hurts, when I've received a blow of any kind, I allow myself to, to feel the pain and then I just, you know, process it and move forward. I don't want to sit there because I don't want to be where I was, you know, over 10 years ago. Um, I want to end with the following um, point. The, the third step prayer, which many of you say, you know, daily, which I also say daily, I ask higher power to take away my difficulties, right? Not my problems, my difficulties, meaning my instincts gone awry. Why? Because victory over them is going to bear witness to those I would help of what? Of how amazing I am? No, of your power, God, of your way of life. I want to do your will always. That's my job description. I'm meant to live a life that teaches people who higher power really is. And, and how to live in in line with the with the under you know the will of our higher power you know the God of our understanding, and also in the seven step prayer that I say daily I also there I ask higher power to remove my character defects. Why? 
so that I could serve him and others. That's the point. That's why I'm here. I'm here to serve him and others. So really, if I want a happy life, it has to be the God show, not the Esther show. And like the 12 and 12 states, there's no amount of pomp and circumstance and no heap of material possessions that could substitute for the godly way of living. And that's something that I get to live every day. And the last line here I'm quoting from the AA 12 and 12 says that true ambition is the desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God one day at a time. And that's what I try to do every day. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Esther, thank you for this thought-provoking and inspiring presentation this morning. Thanks for sharing your personal insights and remarkable transformation of thought, attitude, and action with all of us today. This presentation, share ID 16,075, that's 16075. Esther's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Esther, pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Ginger C. Ginger C. Kathy K. Kathy K. Jason K. Jason. Anyone else in this round? I'll take that as a no. Let's get started with Ginger C. Uh, uh, yes, Hilda S. Malky G. Hilda S. and Malky G. Okay, excellent. Ginger C., go ahead, please, with your question. Okay, great. Can you hear me, Leah? I do. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much for your continued service. Esther, oh, my goodness, what a beautiful gift for all of us this Sunday morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I just soaked up every single word that you just shared. And, you know, Bill suffered from great depression from these false dependencies. And you so clearly showed that break and what has happened. And he shared that from this place, what shifted for him is he found stability and quietness of mind. Because doesn't everything center in those thoughts that you so beautifully talked and shared about? So you're so right. We don't work it. We live it. And then we become it. And I want to know, um, my question to you is, how do you continue? Thanks. Thanks, Ginger, for asking that question. You know, it's, it's a really boring answer, and you know what I'm going to say. I just keep doing what, what, I'm, what I have done until now. Um, I have not reached a point where I, things don't crop up. I'm still human, and I expect that till, for as long as I live, I will, my, uh, my ego, which is, which is something my, my natural um, selfish desires are things that higher power created and put in me. I believe that we're meant to um, grapple with them in order to come close to him. So I expect that they'll always be around and I will always address them um, in the way that I've been taught because it, it's the way that works for me. So I don't have a special um, answer to that other than to say that I continue to do what I've always done. Of course, as um I grow and change, then the, everything is much more nuanced. Like if I tell you I had a temper tantrum, a temper tantrum today is not doesn't look like a temper tantrum did 10 years ago when there was yelling and things like that. Today, a, a tantrum could just be like a wine fest, a complaint fest, you know, like, oh, um, but, but 
to, to, for me today, where I am today, that is considered like a tantrum in a sense that it's, um, you know, uh, self-indulgent and com- coming from a place of, of, you know, again, the instincts gone awry. So I, I, I wish I had something more exotic to tell you other than just keep doing what we're doing. No, and that, with that, I'll pass. Thanks, Ginger C. Kathy Kay, your turn. Uh, thank you, Leah, for your service. And thank you, Esther C. It was wonderful to hear you. And I really identify with coming to understand that it's my thinking which created my misery after I did the inventory work. What I want to ask you today is um, something I've been running up against is my powerlessness over my thinking. There are certain thoughts that come to my mind which really undermine my sense of well-being, and yet I am unable to replace those thoughts with better thoughts. Or if I do, it's very temporary. Um, Is it just a matter of persistence and doing another tenth and another tenth and another tenth? (laughs) Or have you come up with other approaches? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, So I'll tell you my experience with that. I had a few persistent resentments that something would happen, my thinking would get in the way, I'd get upset, you know, and certainly I wasn't acting out in this way, but in my head it wasn't so peaceful. So that is what I find um, where the fellowship and these meetings that we listen to every day come in. You know, people always ask me, why do you, why are you still listening eight years later? Like what could they be say, saying that you don't know, haven't already heard that you haven't said yourself? So all it takes is one person to say something that could be transformational. And I re- recall I was having trouble with a certain relative. And again, I was right. Their behavior wasn't appropriate. I was behaving okay. And they kept doing this. And I'd get a resentful. And then, I, and then I'd work it out. And, and it would sort of last for a very short time until the next round. And one time um, someone was doing a special edition. And the question was asked. Um, the person was asking a question about their own sponsee um, and said, you know, they keep coming with the same resentment. You know, what should I tell them? So the speaker said, I would say to that person, what do you gain by holding on to the resentment? So I thought, wow, what does that mean? So I took that home with me, you know, back to my thinking and to my meditating. I said, so I was thinking about that person that I was having trouble with for like years, right? Decades. It's in the family. The family ones are usually the ones that are persistent. And I said, what do I gain by remaining angry? Right? What do I gain? And I realized, and it wasn't even with just this person, but it was in a few relationships that, that I guess I, 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 what, what, how was the resentment serving me? And I realized that the way, in this case, the resentment was serving me because then it kept me in the position of being right. Like what would happen if I let go of that resentment? What if I, what would happen if I would say it, it, it is what it is. It was what it was. And I'm going to forget about it. Then I would feel like one second. So then you must have won and I must have lost. And no one's going to know that really I was right. And really you hurt me. I, I felt like I was letting go of some victory. And I realized there's no victory and nobody cares. And certainly my higher power knows everything anyways, right? doesn't have to be on the front pages of the New York Times. And then that resentment, which this was about three years ago. So we're talking seven years after I recovered, you know, you know, continuous resentments in the same area were just wiped out with that thought. 
So today, sometimes, you know, when I speak to people and some people I, I speak to, you know, periodically on a regular basis, and they'll have the same, you know, persistent resentment, my husband, my kids, right? It's usually the people that we're close with. And I'll say, what do you gain by holding on to that resentment? And so that is a one example of of uh, of of, of a way of thinking that was introduced to me that I hadn't thought of before. And and there are others. Um, I'll give you one other example is that I worked in a school and I was having a lot of trouble with the students. They weren't interested in what I wanted and I was trying to get through, you know, the curriculum. So, and I started to get angry and my daughter who used to help me out sometimes, she said, why are you getting mad at the way? And I said, well, they're, you know, behaving like students. She says, well, that's to them. That's a, that's a great day. And and that she's not even a program, and that was also a, you know um, uh, an eye opening for me because I realized um, one thing I realized is that there are people whose idea of a good day and a good life is a is is completely in conflict with what I think is a good day and a good life. Right? The kid comes in hoping that the 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 fire bell is gonna the fire alarm is gonna go off and that the teacher is gonna forget her nose that there's gonna be a flood. Right? And the teacher goes in and thinks, oh, today's gonna be a good day. We're gonna get through all the all the material. Right? So, so, so that was also very important idea for me. And another one which I try to give over to anyone I speak to on outreach calls because we have this idea that we can only live sort of peacefully with people who sort of see the way the world the way we do but we're always um, living with people who don't see the way the world the way we do I like to say that I have no trouble living it's just once you put all those other people in my life that's when the problems start right there are people who who probably look at me for different reasons and think I don't want me alive right they're like they're there are people who think that I'm killing them and people who I think they're killing me in a sense. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I have to, once I had that understanding, so then the resentment melts away. So today I can look at things that people do and think that it's destructive, it's bad, it's dangerous, but and I can address it without the anger, right? Without that, I can't believe it in these people and without the reacting in a way that's not becoming of me. So that's, let's say, a second example of one way that I had finally dealt with persistent, um, um, what do you call it, persistent resentments. I, I mean, I've met people who've eaten over the um, political turmoil because they somehow never had this idea that there's a way to live peacefully even when people disagree with each other in a very strong way. So all of this was only made possible because of my continuous you know, connection, the fellowship and being, speaking to people all the time. And, and and my prayer and meditation, kind of like thinking through these ideas, you know, and asking God, I want to get rid of this, you know, show me, reveal to me in some way. And, and surely that'd be, and it doesn't always have to be like the, the greatest speaker, you know, in, in AA saying something that knocks me off my, my chair. It could be just a share. It's like, oh my gosh, what a powerful thought. So this is the value of, you know, attending the meetings and being sort of in the middle of the fellowship. And I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Thanks, Kathy Kay, for the question. Jason Kay, star one to unmute. Hi. Uh, thanks, Leah. Thank you, Esther. I really enjoyed your um, presentation. And I wanted to maybe uh, follow up with the statements you made about, you know, taking some of these thoughts, replacing them with better thoughts, and kind of how you um, avoid um, like a pitfall of, 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 you know, like a positive thinking or just like a paradigm shift, like a, like a, uh, I guess sort of 
making sure that somehow you're inviting God in, that these are intuitive and inspired thoughts. And then um, from there, if you have any thoughts too about taking, you know, a better outlook uh, or thinking or the different perspective and taking that leap into action, like taking specific concrete actions. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could maybe comment more on that. Regarding your first um, question about changing those thoughts, so I think that um, it really happens for me in that fourth column, specifically where the big book says, what are my dishonest thinking? So, of course, it's addressing if there are any actual lies told. But that is where I say to myself, I ask myself the question, and this to me is like the, the most important part of my 10th step, right? Not obviously the first part where I get to complain and whine about who I'm mad and, and why, but where I say to myself, what, what is the lie? What is the thought I'm telling myself that's keeping me in this resentment? And that's the one I have to challenge. And I, I, if in fact it's not true, that's where I change it. So um, um, one one thing that used to plague me um, earlier in my earlier years, and I do hear some, you know, from other people, for example, is they people resent their friends who don't keep up with them, right? Um, so, you know, so they say, you know, I always call them, they don't call me back. And then, you know, I call them six times, they only call me once, that kind of thing, right? So to, to, to me today, that sort of seems petty, but I remember a time where I was sort of keeping track. So we'd get to the fourth column and what are the lies I tell myself? And they would say, well, you know, f- you know, f- friends should keep up with friends. I said, well, are you telling yourself the lie that it has to be even? And is that true? Does it have to be even? Do all relationships have to be even in that way? You know, she doesn't seem to think so. Whoever it is that isn't calling you back and you think so, but she doesn't think so. So I can't say that I always have a uh, a thought necessary to replace the one that isn't working. But I, I think just living and, and having done these 10 steps, um, new thoughts come up and then I often get to apply them in other places. So there's usually a thought that's keeping me angry. So I, I I just look at that thought and say, can I replace it with something else? Something that's not self-centered, but something that's God-centered. Um, but it, again, it's, it's usually um, like if you had an example, I could, let's say throw out, a, a, you know, an alternate thought or something like that. But, but I find that, you know, if I think it through, like if I say, what is keeping me in the zone? What am I thinking? What's fueling the anger? Then I'll say to myself, but is that true? Does it have to be that way, right? Like I always thought that pain was something to be avoided. So I would be in fear of any possible painful situations, right? Whether they were like legitimate pain or not. And then I said to myself, one second, pain is does not need to be, a, a, you know, one can live a happy life having either physical pain or emotional pain. Like we can, we can live well, even if we have pain. So I was able to challenge that thought. And so now I don't have to, um, I don't know, go to crazy measures to numb the pain like I used to, or to avoid the pain um, or to work very hard. Right. I, I'm always seeking comfort. And then I'm like, you know, hard work is good. <laughs> um that that's a that's a uh, that's a thought that was changed and that changes the way how I act. So I don't complain when I, you know, have to do things. Uh, let me give you another example. I remember shopping at the grocery store and carrying a lot of bags. Usually my uh, younger kids do all this, but they weren't around and I was doing it. I'm like, I can't believe at my age I am schlepping these grocery bags. And I'm like, 
one second, that's the thought, you know, what's feeling resentment that I shouldn't have to do this at my age. And I said to myself, you are lucky to be able to do this at your age. I can find you people who would, who would dream that they should be able to carry groceries. Today, I can tell you, I do not complain when I have to carry groceries. I'm happy that I'm still well enough to carry groceries. So all it takes is an examination of one's thinking and then possibly offering up an alternative. And I'll pass at that. Thanks, Jason K. Hilda S. Star one ten mute. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for your service. I've got so much out of listening to you. Um, I'm trying to formulate this question um, on the topic of uh, self pity. Sometimes I I, I I grapple with like, is it self pity? Or am I being kind to myself and saying, okay, I'm not, I'm, it's not always my fault. It's not, uh, it, it, you know, it, I did the best I can. Or a lot of times when it, self, it's what someone might think is self-pity, it's me being, showing some self-understanding and kindness to myself. So I get a little bit confused. It's a little bit muddy the waters. So maybe you can help and clarify. I'd appreciate that. So I had mentioned that, that's a good question. I had mentioned that when we suffer pain, whether it's physical pain or another kind of pain, it's appropriate to, to you know, to, to, re- to, to react to that. We say, ouch, will we get hurt? Um, I think the self-pity is the part where for me then, um, like, like every time, let's say, I will have a medical procedure, it hurts every time. And every time I say, ouch, but I, I don't see that as self-pity. I just see that as a normal reaction to something that hurts. I guess self-pity is the part where suddenly I absolve myself um, of whatever it is, you know, responsible adult behavior, or I feel suddenly I'm entitled to, you know, special consideration. Um, let's say, well, I, I shouldn't say that because you could be in pain and need a little time too. But um, for me, self-pity was the point where it's like it was time to move on, and yet I didn't want to leave that sort of place of of um, um, what's the word of, of feeling like I, I, I was hopeless and helpless. Meaning, mm-hmm. I, it, where where it where it prevents me from doing what I need to do. So I guess that's the part where a legitimate response to pain becomes, you know, self pity at the point where it's now preventing me from moving forward and leaving me in a place where I, you know, feel entitled and and sort of you know, that the world is unfair. It's a, it's pretty mm-hmm. subtle, and you kind of usually only know about it till you, you know you're in it, right? And you're like, this isn't working, this feeling sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. I hope that helps. Oh, yes, thank you. I, I would also like to add that at some point, when when in self-pity, we will experience feelings of restless irritability and discontent. Most likely we'll um, experience something other than secure and stable, you know, sensation and then usually it'll be through a 10 step. Well, I'll discern um, that my, it's been my self pity that's been holding me back. Like I, you know, I don't get into other psychological um, uh, pathways to figuring this out. It's like the same old, same old, you know, I respond to, to, let's say some pain. And when, if it's a normal response and not from self pity, I guess I could maintain that stability and security. 
um, and well-being, but I, when it, it gets to be moved into regular response into self-pity, then usually a 10th step would come up because there would probably be resentment or fear associated with it. Thank you, Hilda, for your question. Malki G, your turn. Yeah, hi, it's Malki G. Esther, thank you very much. That was very clear, and those points were very specific. Um, two things that really the hair wrung out, two lines that you said that I still see my becoming aware has really been transformed, but sometimes I can fall off track, was that self-pity is seductive. Um, I see that happening all, all the time, and you continued with that line, but I know how to get back to the track. And, you know, that's what I'm learning, that there are some things that I still see I'm still craving to, but I know the track back, and it is getting stronger, and I appreciate that you sharing that. Um, my question is, is I heard you, you mentioned the, you know, the caretaking, and this is an area I'm still straddling with. I don't really have great clarity, and I would love if you can help me with it. There's a very fine line in the rooms between the caretaking and service. You know, for so long, my thought was, you know, you know, once coming into the rooms and seeing how low I have become, you know, I was very careful about not caretaking and someone else has a higher power. But behind that, as I'm doing more 10 steps and working quiet with them, I'm seeing there's really some ego and protection. So if you can help me a little bit between how I can get quiet and really see, get to the source of defining. Since I can do caretaking, there is a difference of not being some entire power. How can you help me define between caretaking and service? Thank you. Thanks, Malki G, for the question. Um, I actually don't know what you are referring to by caretaking. I didn't use that word, but let's assume that you were talking about just giving. Um, you know, versus service. Like, how do I know? How, how do I know where to put a stop to it, and how much is too much? So, one thing that my sponsor always told me is, she said, if you're giving from uh, a God-centered place, from like that starting point, then you don't have to worry about overdoing it because it's the nature of a God-centered action is that it's like balanced and stable. Um, usually, when I feel like I'm doing too much. Um, I'll be resentful of it, of course, and then I'll have a, a chance to examine my thinking again in the fourth, you know, in the tenth step or the fourth step, and I will see that there were some um, uh, selfish, you know, instincts, some natural instinct that was looking to be, you know, uh, whatever, uh, filled there, and it wasn't, and in fact, that my giving wasn't coming from a you know, completely altruistic position. Now, it doesn't make every giving that we do bad, but it at least gives us a glimpse into the kinds of the type of pitfalls, and it also allows us to be able to distribute our resources, our time, and our energies, in, in, you know, in the way that that's healthy and 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 balanced for us. So, so, you know, people will always react when I say that about being driven. They said, but you could really become a dishrag by giving too much. I said, but not if it's coming from a God-centered place because cause, um, one will discern that their higher power doesn't expect them to, you know, neglect, you know, like themselves or bring themselves to the brink of ruin in order to do service. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Now, do we have to stretch ourselves? Yes, muscles um, grow when they're stretched and also service muscles grow um, when they're stretched. 
So um, that's how I, I still, it doesn't really happen to me so much anymore, but certainly in the beginning when I got recovered, I would do things, do things, do things. And at the minute I had the thought, like, I can't believe they didn't. And I knew that my giving was, was coming from a different place. Sometimes I give and I give and I give to quiet my, my fears, you know, so, you know, sometimes I did that and I had to realize where my giving was coming from. But I have found that I'm able to allocate my re- time and resources better when, um, and appropriately when I'm coming from a God-centered place and not a self-centered place. And usually I only know how to do that after I did it the other way and got mad <laughs> or resentful of the people who didn't say thank you or, you know, didn't acknowledge it or weren't there for me when I needed them or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you, Malti G. Who else has a question for Esther? You can press star one to unmute. I didn't catch that name. Vivian M. Vivian N. Tippy J. Tippy J. Anyone else? Carla S. Carla S. Dorita P. Dorita P. Any others? This will probably be the final invitation for questions. Okay, we'll go with that group. Vivian N. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Esther. This was just wonderful. I was hearing my own story as you were saying your words, and I appreciate it so. Um, I hope I'm not being redundant. I had to step away for a couple of minutes. But the question I have is um, I noticed a change in myself, and other people have noticed a change in me, and I'm just so, so grateful. Um, And sometimes, though, I feel as though I'm thinking things that are my old horrible thinking, my old ways of thinking, that twisted thinking, and then when I do everything that I need to do, the service, my 10 steps and reaching out and you know, the different things that I, I work on every day, I feel as if I, I go back to this person that's so close to God and so God-centered. And, and sometimes I just have those other uh, demons, whatever you'd like to call them, that crop up. And um, I, I, I guess my question is sometimes I don't know. I, I have a hard time discerning. If I'm just being a fraud, is this really who I am becoming or have become or when I feel that way? Or sometimes is that really the other person? It's like the Jekyll and Hyde thing. And I struggle with that sometimes. And um, and I don't like to um, have to point a finger, which I do, because that's, that's what I do, because it makes me feel good. That's my low self-esteem. And I, I just sometimes struggle with that. And I'd like to know if you experience that, what you do with that, um, uh, how, how, you, how you look at that and handle that. Thank you. That's an amazing question, and I have been there, and I'm still there sometimes. And what didn't work for me, um, not before I came to the program of recovery, not after, is that loving, um, uh, uh, it's all right. Like, it just doesn't speak to me. So I'll tell you what I, I do, and it, some people will like it and some people won't like it. I prefer, like, the coach, <laughs> the strong coach approach. Um, and 
and I, like I'll do something which will be so off, and I said to myself, I can't believe it. And you called yourself recovered, and you had the audacity to even share on the line and call yourself recovered, and that's what you did. I can't believe I'm here. It's been like whatever nine years or seven years or ten years, and then and then I'll start to go down to which road? Remember that? Who's knocking at my door? Self pity. Uh, right? I started to, and then I said to myself, well, what do you want to do now? I don't know. I can't believe it. It's already been like nine years. Well, do you have another plan that ever worked for you before? No. Um, do you know what's worked for you in the past? Yes. So go do it. <laughs> and I just, you know, fix up what I have to fix up, do a 10 step, if I, if I, which will be usually required because there'll be some, you know, feeling inside me that's unpeaceful and make an amends if I need to, and then just do it. And every time I say the same thing to myself, do you know a better way? Do you know something else you need to do? So just do it and move on. Because if you're going to sit here, it's going to get like a swamp, and you're going to get sucked inside. And the only thing you're going to lose is, is, is time, and you can make things worse. And God forbid you could end up feeling like you need to start eating. So that's um, what I tell myself. And I want to tell you that just like the last month or so, I've, I've had an exceptional family challenge. and um, and I've been doing regular 10 steps and on Friday, we're talking two days ago, I was on the phone with my daughter and she said the thing that triggered me and I responded to her and it wasn't like a nasty or like that, but it was just, a little, you know, rebuking her for something she'd done. So she felt bad about it. I felt bad about it. So I'm pacing my living room yesterday going, you're going to get on the line and you're going to be talking about this. And I said, and I said, but I'm not getting on the line and saying that. I've ever going to near perfection. So of course I called her last night and I said, you know what? I said to her, you know, I apologize. I said, I've had time to think through it. I said, you know, I, I think that uh, I hadn't considered, you know, you and blah, blah, blah. And I made amends and it all ended nicely. And, and I said to her, you know, I, <laughs> I, I felt like, I, and the reason I called her last night, um, I, I, you know, I waited till she was available. And, but I also felt like I, I, you know, you can't get on the line and, and talk about something that's your experience if you, you know, if you sort of like got these frayed ends. So I felt that I wanted to take care of that. So, yes, of course, I experienced that feeling, but I don't let it get to me because that's another way that self-pity wants to get in, in the door. And so, you know, so, yeah, I was off and, yeah, it's not good. And, and yeah, you know, wreckage is not always clean up a bowl and but best to not get go there. But let's just do what we can today. And it's the same old boring stuff that we learned way back when, and that's, you know, steps. And I'll pass it that. Thanks, Vivian N. Tippy J, star one to unmute. Hi, can I be heard? Yes. Hi, good morning, everyone. This is Tippy J, compulsive overeater. Thank you so much, everyone, for their service, and thank you, Esther, so much for your talk this morning, um, talking a lot about thinking and the thought that keeps on coming to my mind is what I've been hearing on these lines, um, is that my sick mind cannot heal my sick mind. Um, And I'm wondering how that plays into all this. Like, I have never been able to come up with better ideas in my own head. Um, Okay, one minute, go back. Um, Like, I've never been able to come up with better ideas than myself, so how how does that change or how does that evolve into a place where I could come up with a better way of approaching situation? That's a good question, Tippi, but um, I remember learning that we are restored to sanity 
when we recover. So it's not um, it's not just thinking that helps me in this place. There is definitely, you know, the meditation and the development of my the relationship with my higher power, and and I guess a certain um, you know just doing what I have to do every day on a daily basis, which you know sort of plants those ideas in my head. Um, it's not like a it's not like an academic uh exercise it's a spiritual exercise you know using my mind i don't know i don't know about this thick mind i'm actually just looking right now in in the big book concordance to see if the sick mind is something that you know is actually in the big book or is something that just people you know say but a sick mind not being able to talk hail a sick mind is probably true but i i was taught that once I recover, that I will be restored to sanity and my thinking will be different. And that so long as I grow spiritually that, you know, God would, you know, guide me to make, you know, better decisions and to put ideas in my mind um, that would help me. And and in fact, that's what happened, right? So when I'm unsure sometimes about something or uh, when I'm looking for a new way of looking at it, either through my own thoughts or speaking with others or hearing others, um, I'm introduced to new ways of thinking. Thanks for your question. Yes, thank you, TPJ. Carla S., star one to unmute. This is Carla S., and I'm a compulsive everything. Um, thank you so much for your service this morning, Esther. Um, when you said uh, about loading your own groceries and then re- rethinking it and saying, thank God I have the energy and the strength to do this, um, you caught me. That's what I did just two days ago. Um, I wanted to ask you, I still have squirrely thoughts, which just means if something's um, resentful about something, it just runs around even though I feel like I've trapped it. And um, I is that just me being me? Question mark? Where are you in the step work? Yeah, where are you in your step work? I'm doing nine. I'm just starting nine. Uh Uh So you've had a chance to go through the fourth step inventory. So, um, I mean, nine is the process that takes however long it takes to make the amends, but perhaps shortly you'll be starting on the 10th step and 11th step process, which will allow you to every day um, process the you know, resentments and fears as they arise. So, um, so that is how you'll be, and I don't recall the question, but that is how you're going to be um, dealing with, you know, these thinking that arises, right? Like that's the, I don't have a special way of, of addressing resentments other than what I was taught. You know, who do I resent, why, what instincts have been affected, and where have I been selfish Mm -hmm. about keeping this honest and fearful? Mm. Has that addressed your question? Uh, Carla, did you want to respond? You'll need to press star one. Thank you. I'm I'm still working on how to make amends, mainly to my adult children, and um, I think it, you know living a clean 
life and God-centered um, is going to be my living amends to them. And um, thank you so much for your service. That was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Carla S. Dorita P., your turn. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. Um, thank you, Esther. My name is Dorita. I'm a, a recovered compulsive overeater. Uh, my question is um, the fourth column of the fourth uh, step, the fourth column of the resentment, listing the resentments. Um you talked about um, having a resentment and seeing um, seeing what benefit you get out of, like, keeping a resentment alive. Um, and you also talked about, um, hmm, like, seeing the lie, you know, in the fourth column, you know, coming up with, I guess, figuring out what the lie that you're telling yourself. Um, I don't know if that's one and the same as far as, like, the resentment and um, what did I say? Um, The resentment and seeing what benefit I'm getting from the resentment and also trying to uh, figure out what the lie that I'm telling myself. Is that one and the same? Or if if you can give uh, more examples of, trying to figure out what the light is that I'm telling myself in the fourth column, I guess, when you're talking about what what part did I play in it? I don't know if you understand the question. Um, I do. I, I took, wrote notes on your question. So um, the in terms of the dishonesty, when I say what are the lies I tell myself, it could be, I could also phrase it as what are, what is the, well, I call it lies only because it's not useful, but it could be any, what are the thoughts I keep fueling in my mind that, you know, that keep me in this resentment? So, for example, one of the things I always believe that life is supposed to be fair. So when I get resentful that someone has something that I don't, you know, when I get to that fourth column, I say to myself, well, what is, what is the thought? What's the lie you're telling yourself that life has to be fair? Well, is that true, Esther? According to your higher power, was the world created to like in a fair way? No, you know, for, for at least for what's observable by me. So that's where I get to examine um, all kinds of thinking that isn't working for me and I need to look at differently. Um, 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 now in terms of persistent resentment, so really I apply that, what I told you in terms of the benefit, like sort of the side, uh, the benefits of, of certain persistent resentments, I really apply that idea to, um, like, what am I gaining from this resentment? Why would I keep staying here? Why does it keep coming up? I usually apply that to persistent resentments and almost always with, like, long-term relationships, mostly in families. Um, but I had it at work also where I, it's been like a year and a half and I'm still resentful about something that happened and no one's really owned up to it, um, although they must have forgotten about it. So I kept thinking, well, what do you gain by staying in that resentment? And um and for me, every single time the answer was um, that I get to maintain my position of right rightness, because what happens if I give up the resentment, then really no one's going to know that they wronged me. You know, it's going to sort of fly away there. I'm never going to like kind of get validation about the fact that I was wrong. So um, maybe I'm, maybe that's 
another way of looking at it, like I'm still waiting for the validation and I may never get it. I might be one of those silent heroes, those courageous people who have, you know, uh, suffered wrongs and were never acknowledged or given prizes, you know, (laughs) for it. Um, So, so that persistent resentment um, little exercise I do is, is um, kind of a little step above just looking at my regular dishonesties. But oftentimes, um, you know, the, the manifestation looks different, but it's always the same thing, right? All these ideas that I grew up with, the same life has to be fair, it shouldn't be too hard, pain is bad. You know, a lot of them boil down to that. I have to, People have to like me to be happy. My life has to be easy to be happy. You know, all that stuff, <laughs> which seemed perfectly logical sounding to me when I was in the disease. I hope that helps. Thank you, Dorita P. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Esther, for your beautiful presentation this morning. With, we have time uh, for one more question. Uh, go ahead. It's Ricky M. Okay. Um, I have a quick question. What happens when we have a transformation and we're working the steps and we really are showing up in a better, you know, light and world and the people around us are having a hard time with the change? Like, I don't know if it's the guilt or the, the somehow that their response is, is not as positive. We're getting like a negative response to our positive change. I don't know if there's an experience with that. Thanks. So, um, that's a good question. When I first began a program of recovery, and it was just a, such a glowing period, especially I had a lot of weight to lose, so it was very pink, that pink cloud stage, and I did not feel a good response um, to, you know, sort of a response from those around me. It occurred to me, and this was like a little bit after, that what I thought was like a glow of transformation was was not, meaning that um, – that, uh, like I was changing and feeling amazing about losing weight and looking good, but in fact that I wasn't transformed. I mean, it's hard to believe that however many years we have of wreckage is going to be erased or um, sort of absolved in, you know, a month, two months, three months, or even one or two years of, of being recovered. I believe that if we stay on course and we do what we're supposed to do and we grow spiritually, we will, everything around us will seem, um, better even if it in fact isn't so when you say that others aren't responding so i don't even think today about how others are responding to my recovery the fact that it's still on your mind that in itself could be a resentment here i am recovering and the people around me don't see how i'm transforming so that in itself will teach you something about maybe the nature of your own recovery and where some of again your uh, you know your thoughts but it's a, a natural to me a natural um event that when people grow spiritually in a genuine way that things will improve for them and improve for the people around them. Um, it does take time and sometimes our, our, what we think is genuine recovery is, is not quite yet. So give time. Wreckage uh, takes a while to be built and not everything that we broke can be rebuilt, but we can always make life better. And that's a nice way to end. Thank you. It is. Inspiring <laughs> words. Thank you, Esther, for your presentation delivered with Great clarity, instruction, and insights. Much appreciated.
Share ID for this morning's presentation, 16,075. That's 16075. We're going to close now. You're going to find this from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.